0: Welcome to Identity, a series brought to you by ID Magazine. Join me, Osman Ahmed, ID's Fashion Features Director, as I explore the enduring legacy of some of the last four decades' most influential subcultures. This week, we're taking a look at three of the most famous Japanese designers who brought East and West together through the lens of Japanese counterculture and changed the way we all dress in the process.
1: It was like East and West
2: meeting together and and creating something new. They were kind of punkish in a way in their exploration of the body and and questioning what beauty
3: is. These are not garments that fit into an idea of trends, but rather fit into the individual vision of a a creator.
1: I discovered a world I had no idea it was existing.
3: Everything was something I felt like unseen. It was kind of asking a question about, you know, what do you mean by beauty? What do you mean by clothes beautifying the body? In
0: 1982, the Paris fashion world was blown off its feet. Two designers who had flown over from Tokyo used their respective collections to entirely shift the way we think about clothes. Their names are Rei Kawakubo of Comme des Garcons and Yoji Yamamoto, and their black, oversized, distressed garments shown at Paris Fashion Week would go on to change our very understanding of fashion. Channeling the beauty of darkness and poetic destitution, they created enveloping silhouettes and purposefully aged fabrics in only the deepest, darkest shades of black. Often their clothes were worn with pallid bare faces, flat shoes and uneven hems and finishings. Alongside these two, Izzy was also turning heads with his avant-garde functional designs that embraced elements from both Western and Japanese fashion. Together, these three designers would reshape the fashion landscape and their influence on the way we dress and what we consider as designer clothes can still be felt today.
2: I'm Tiffany Godoy. I'm the head of editorial content of Vogue Japan.
0: For Tiffany, the 1982 collections were the moment that Japan arrived on the global fashion stage.
2: They made a lot of noise, so they basically showed collections of black clothes with holes in them, almost like unisex silhouettes, taking ideas, I think, from Japanese, like the kimono is unisex, right? So that for them was also very natural, body conscious, but there's volume. So it's a very avant-garde proposition of how one could dress, how a woman could dress. And... You know, at that time, it's a very glossy moment in fashion. The economy worldwide is very, you know, there's a lot of money that's starting to move. And so there's a lot of glamour, I think, in, in Paris at that time. And there's a certain way that a woman looks, you know, usually it's about seduction, right? Fashion. Um, and this was not at all. And, you know, the clothes look like they were explosions. They were kind of almost torn up. So to present that on a runway in that context was absolutely shocking.
0: When they did, their distressed collections divided the Western fashion industry into two camps. There were those who embraced the new proposition for dressing, which challenged the Parisian status quo, but others found it the antithesis to what they felt fashion should be. Acclaimed fashion historian and curator Valerie Steele remembers how the Western press reacted.
3: The reaction was extremely hostile to Ray and to Yoji. Really, even very sophisticated fashion critics for important periodicals were saying things like, you know, I've worked out and want to make my body beautiful, and French designers understand I can show off my body in their beautiful, colorful, form fitting clothes. But, you know, here are these Japanese who are shrouding me in oversized, shabby looking, black, destroyed clothes that are ripped up.
2: You know, glamour is just a word that just constantly comes to mind when you talk about that era. And this was kind of the opposite of that. And I think, you know, Finding beauty and ugliness is, you know, wabi-sabi is one of the Japanese philosophies. So something that is damaged can also be beautiful.
0: And so just to explain, this is the Zen Buddhist concept of wabi-sabi, finding beauty and imperfection, which was fundamental to how Rei and Yoji designed those early collections. You
2: know, they were kind of punkish in a way, in their exploration of the body and questioning what beauty is. And it's like usually when you talk to Japanese designers, you know, or anybody, it's like going to the Olympics, right, Paris, it's like really challenging yourself and, and seeing how you measure up. Then you come back home. It elevates your your status too, right? You know, business is also affected by that moment.
0: And Tiffany, having shown his first international show a decade before, how does Izzy Miyake relate to these two designers?
2: His first show was in 1971, so he's a bit of a precursor within this group. Came up at this moment when there was a lot big industrialization of fashion and also um, textile companies in Japan, and so his work is initially was very much kind of around like a, a piece of cloth, apoc. So working with almost like using the idea of kimono and, and one piece of cloth and, and not cutting it, so traditional Japanese thinking with the industrialization and fabric making because he made most of his fabrics and that was very much a part of his process. You know, as we all know now, like Pleats Please and, and, um, you know, the various lines that he did develop, it was just around this fascination with um, crafts and mass production, really.
0: Valerie Steele explains how Yoji Yamamoto and Rei Kawakubo picked up his mantle and took it to new extremes.
3: Yoji Yamamoto was closely associated with Rei for some time. He came out of more of a dressmaking tradition. His mother had been a dressmaker, whereas Rei had studied aesthetics at university. She insisted that she started from ground zero, that she didn't look at the past. She was making clothes that were looking towards a future. Yoji was also making clothes that were radically different inspired also in part by Japanese folk constructions. Uh, He's talked about black being like the color of ninjas and leaping into darkness. And he also made a wonderful statement where he said how if you wore black clothes, you were basically telling people, don't bother me and I won't bother you. Meanwhile, Ray took a more abstract and aesthetic view, and she talked about how I work in seven shades of black.
0: Natalie Alls began working for Yoji Yamamoto in the late 1980s. I remember seeing one of his shows for the first time.
1: So, um, I was invited to the show. It was the spring summer 87 and I discovered a world I had no idea was uh, it was existing. I mean, it was Everything was something I felt like unseen uh, for the proportion of the closing, the casting, the music, I mean, pretty much everything. It was like East and West meeting together and and creating something new, um, nourished by the history.
0: And Natalie, what was the reaction to those early shows like? Do you remember?
1: This has been like a huge shock when he started in Paris, because basically that was the big time of Saint Laurent and this kind of a, a Parisian aesthetic, very sophisticated. And he arrived with this clothing, which were not considered as, as clothing. It was all like black and uh, huge and uh, um, there was show with uh, no hair, no makeup, no music, completely. it was like an apocalypse. That's how actually the French or, or, or I mean, international press were referring to.
0: Terms like Hiroshima's revenge, fashion kamikaze and Japanese invasion were used by some of the Western fashion press to describe these designers' work when they first appeared on the runways of Paris. At the time, Yoji and Ray's new disciples were labelled as crows, and their quote unquote funeral shrouds were billed as fashion's Pearl Harbor. Yoji and Ray were called ragpickers, and Women's Wear Daily even pronounced the arrival of the pair in Paris as a passing fad. These reductive and xenophobic terms illustrate how myopic and small minded the fashion industry was at the time. It completely overlooked the illustrious traditions in Japanese art and culture and the conceptual differences in clothing sign between Japan and the West. Here's Valerie again.
3: What's interesting about Japanese dress history is that after having a long history influenced by Chinese dress, Japanese fashion was really kept separate from the world until Admiral Perry's black ships broke in in the 1860s and forcibly opened Japan to uh, international trade and political um, engagement. And the Japanese Meiji government was so frightened by the thought of possible colonization by Western nations that they instituted a really revolutionary, top-down transformation of society where they brought in British industrialists, German military leaders, French fashion designers, and said, right, we're going to find out what makes the West powerful and do it ourselves. And so in that way, Western fashion was brought in top down as being something that, you know, if Japanese diplomats were wearing Western dress, they would be in a better position to negotiate treaties, for example, with the West elite Japanese women would be wearing full Western dress to make an impression of being civilized on Western terms. And then of course, you had a sort of double system that came in where ordinary Japanese also started to wear Western clothes some of the time, but at home would wear traditional Japanese clothes, which is really kind of unique in in the way that Western dress was brought into a country that was not colonized, but remained uh, independent.
2: The other really important factor is that Japan went from being a kind of, quote unquote, third world country decimated after the war to an economy that was kind of paralleling the US and Europe. At that time, it was a very accelerated shift economically. And obviously that transformed the way people live. Uh, Technology was also a really big part of, of that time. You know, I think the Walkman came out in 1982. Innovation was happening. And so that's also the context for why all this is happening.
0: As we've heard, Izumiyaki blazed a trail for Japan in the 1970s, one that was picked up and redefined a decade later by Reiko Akubo and Yoji Yamamoto, who were a couple at the time. Born and raised in the aftermath of the Second World War and amongst the American popular culture that flooded into Japan, when they arrived in Paris in the early 1980s, their approach, while still merging Eastern and Western dress traditions, was marked with a counter-cultural edge. In fact, Yoji's designs actually came with a slogan printed on the labels, there is nothing so boring as a neat and tidy look.
2: you know those two are a similar age and i think they were really all about like the study of questioning v- values and value systems and beauty questioning you know what makes a woman look beautiful or sexy and proportions and uh, how does it sit on the body and things like that i think it was really this question questioning of all that that they both had and explored in very different ways
0: where where do you think that came from
2: it was really this transition between japanese culture and Western culture post-war. So this questioning, I think, of what is Japanese-ness, what is Western youth culture, you know, um, in the late 60s or, or in the 70s, you know, flea markets, denim, the Beatles came to Japan in the 60s, you know, there was all of these different things that were, you know, also happening in Japan. And so then developing that vocabulary of Japanese fashion design, you know, is part of their story and part of the research.
0: And how did they fit into the counterculture happening in Tokyo at the time?
2: this idea of rejecting consumer culture in a way. There was a thing called um, designers and characters, DC brands. So these brands that would push the the personality to the forefront. And, um, you know, as the economy expanded, you had lots of brands that were developing. And I feel like what Yoji and and Ko san were doing was really exploring what clothing can be Um, and also standing apart from a little bit more of a mass commercial looking type of clothing within the Japanese market. And then, yeah, it was a kind of like a counterculture.
0: This is a moment when punk is exploding over the UK, and youth culture is really having its first big moment on a global scale. Do you think that this moment in Tokyo is related to that?
2: I think a lot of it is just around politics and economy and rejection of establishment. That's a a big part of, like, I think, certainly, you know, punk and just kind of generational shifts as well. And I think, you know, in, in Japan at that moment, it was, there was a lot of, like, looking for identity and playing with yofuku, which is, like, Western clothing and not really having any kind of context for why things are the way they are. Of course, like, after the war, American culture was very prevalent in Japan. Hawaiian shirts, denim uniforms and stuff like that so that was the first kind of interface and then you know it evolved
0: it should come as no surprise that a young yoji and ray had visited vivian westwood and malcolm McLaren's epicenter of punk the sex boutique on the king's road in london before they showed in paris
3: Ray and Yoji had seen what Vivian Westwood was doing and her deliberate punk destruction, but what Ray did instead was she would have her people at the factories modify the machines, for example, so that a sweater would be woven with holes already woven into it. There was, of course, a long history in Japanese aesthetics, which Ray knew very well, having studied both Western and Japanese aesthetics, that had the kind of wabi-sabi, things that looked poor and damaged. But in fact, that was a sophisticated kind of aesthetic, which like Impressionism would force the viewer to work a little bit harder towards seeing the beauty in something that seemed unfinished or damaged in the same way that if a Japanese pot was broken, it would be carefully glued together with gold, filling the cracks so that it looked in a way even more beautiful.
0: Ray and Yoji were speaking to a new generation of fashion enthusiasts in the West who rejected the polished look of consumerism in the 1980s, a generation who experienced the immense societal changes around youth culture and subculture firsthand. These were clothes that celebrated the spirituality of imperfection the beauty of transience, and black, a colour worn by religious orders in the Middle Ages, by scholars and thinkers of the Humanist Reformation, by Spanish nobility, and perhaps most importantly, by Yoji's mother, Fumi Yamamoto, who lost her husband in the Second World War and worked 16-hour days as a dressmaker to put her son through school.
1: It was all about black, you know, so it was like, you could compare it in a way to what is happening at Owens' show, you know, it's, Just like a crowd of people, the majority of people at the time were wearing uh, Yoji. Was very much the creative, creative scene, uh, artists and uh, and um, designer, interior designers, intellectual. So it was it was people who were ready to accept uh, something different. The fashion. Strangely enough, the fashion crowd took a bit more time, except for some magazines, such as actually uh, ID or or The Face. And then at the time in France, Marie Claire, which was a very strong uh, magazine at the time. Uh, What really changed, I think it was toward the end of the 90s, where suddenly it was a new generation also of designer coming up. And they were fascinating because they were fascinated by what Yuji was doing because he was the only one doing that. As a designer, when you see the work of the clothing, you don't know where it starts, where it's finished. How can you build this kind of clothes? You know, that was very much... Even though you think, and you know it's a jacket, the construction of it is, is quite amazing. And I remember like, this a, a, a I mean, designers like uh, Mark Jacobs or... Um, or like Narciso Rodriguez and Alexander McQueen, and they were fascinated. I remember like uh, McQueen coming to the show and there was so much admiration, you know, uh, to, to what Yoji was doing.
0: Another thread that runs through the work of Izumiyaki, Rei Kawakubo and Yoji Yamamoto is their approach to building a world around their collections. Each one, in their own distinct way, have been pioneers of experimental retail design, marketing, and even advertising, astutely mastering the balance between creativity and commerce.
3: I mean, this is something clearly that Issey Miyake, with all of the artists and and young designers that he's worked with, and then the creation of exhibitions. I mean, when he did his exhibitions, he was in absolute control of, for example, showing how The please, please clothes might hang from the ceiling, like, you know, sort of bobbing from the ceiling instead of being on mannequins. Or Yoji would create fashion shows, which were very much thematic shows and the imagery that he worked with photographers to create highly evocative images that he did, for example, with Nick Knight that have become sort of paradigmatic of avant-garde fashion photography. Meanwhile, Rei Kubo did a large scale magazine for years, which had photographs, images, it was really a, an avant-garde art magazine. And even to this day, she produces brochures, which are sent to all of the people who are interested in her clothes around the world. So you have a whole series of, as you say, a world, a visual world, which includes very much the clothes, but it's not limited to the clothes.
2: There was, you know, a moment, obviously, when Paul Kugusan and Com de Garçon was publishing Six, which is now like a very, very expensive collector's item of a series of magazines. And stores were very, very simple and very focused on the clothing. Um, a very gallery-like experience, almost like a church-like, a religious kind of experience in, in its kind of concrete I mean, it's still it's still that way. Um, and just see some of the best dressed people you've ever seen <laughs> that are in, in the stores.
0: And Tiffany, can you tell us about the significance of the imagery?
2: Obviously, like, Yoji, you know, in the 90s, he would create these campaigns. Um, Marco Scoli, art directing, and, and, and then later MM, and just making these beautiful, striking images that were on the verge of art i think kind of these just incredible objects and images that would celebrate each season and um, even today when i went to the showroom to see the the of yoji there was this beautiful like blue bag filled with the press release i mean just so textural and generous so these kinds of extensions are all really important i think it re- represents like a moment of really the golden age of Japan, I think, you know, what people really remember as a world that was just so, so different from from the West.
0: Today, those early pieces are a part of museum exhibitions and coveted collector's items. The reason being that four decades on, their early work still feels as fresh as it did the day it shocked Paris.
1: Honestly, I mean, the, if you look at the first show, probably you can find it uh, on, on YouTube. I mean, it's like no makeup, no hair, no music, you know, like warriors walking. I mean, where have you seen that, you know? Um, so it's, yeah, it's history. Obviously it's history and it's still, you know, for now it's still going and and, and that's great because uh, because we need that. I think we need the people who have their own paths who are part of the system but also outside of the system. Whereas nowadays I think for um, a new generation of designers it's it's more challenging to keep your own path because immediately you have to think marketing. And I think when they started it was not it was not the starting point. It was really I think the starting point was really to express yourself, to build your own vocabulary.
0: Um, yeah, your own language, basically. And, and, and that was, um, you know, that's quite unique. Ray, Izzy and Yoji have had an immense effect on the fashion designers who have followed in their wake, both directly by working with young designers and indirectly through their unique visual language and approach to design.
3: After the Japanese economy went into free fall and collapsed in the 1990s, all these designers continued to flourish and to create and to do new things and, in fact, spawned a new generation, uh, some of whom worked with Ray, for example, like Junya Watanabe, others who were encouraged by them, like Jun Takahashi of Undercover, and now Noir, Kei Kinomiya, who's working with Ray Kawakubo. So. In a way, what you find is a whole another generation which has moved, continued to move out of this. And then, of course, you have the tremendous impact of these Japanese avant-garde designers on Western avant-garde designers. I think you'll be hard pressed to find any designers anywhere in the world who haven't been inspired by some of these ideas. For example, the ideas of the mark of time that moves over a garment so that it doesn't necessarily look new. And the idea that these are not garments that fit into an idea of trends, but rather fit into the individual vision of a a creator.
0: These designers' legacy is one that has touched almost every facet of the fashion landscape today. Their boiled wools, cutouts, ragged edges, tears and knots paved the way for a vision of grunge long before it leapt from Seattle to MTV in the 90s and subsequently became a staple of wardrobes all around the world. Their deconstruction of fabrics and finishings reflected a symbolic deconstruction of the past and its values. They also established aesthetic values that would colour fashion's future. Grungy teenagers and goths rifling through thrift stores, Belgian deconstructionists such as Martin Majella and Ander Mjolmeester, the countercultural darkness of Rick Owens, and a generation of image makers and designers who have archival Yoji, Izzy, and Comte de Garçon. Pinned to their mooseboards?
1: I mean, they're part of the history of fashion. I mean, they, they, they definitely uh, uh, broke the system of the time. You know, they, they, they invented something again that didn't exist. Again, you know, they just joined the, the big masters, you know, the, the Gabriel Chanel, the Cristobal Balenciaga. It's just like Ray, Vivian, Alaya, Yoshi, they define a certain timing a sense of freedom to express yourself Um, rebellion also a freedom of being able to say what you think is very specific and i think even this is more freedom today maybe maybe not
3: Identity is written and presented by Osman Ahmed, with additional writing from Ali Duffy and Amelia Phillips. Research was by Alexia Marmara, with art direction by Callum Glenday and Alexandra Tellarcher. The producer was Amelia Phillips, and audio producer is me, Robin Lieber. Identity is a Podmasters production for ID.